This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Many prisons around the world have programs where inmates are given the opportunity to exchange letters with people on the outside. These pen pal schemes are set to contribute to prisoner well-being and improve their chances of successful rehabilitation. This is Apple for the Teacher, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Anna Thomas. Today's episode is called Prison Pen Pal. The woman corresponded with a man in prison. What happened? So let's start this episode with the following question. Why do women fall in love with men in prison? It's actually more common than one would think, and the women come from all socioeconomic backgrounds. Some are highly educated, while others are poor. Some are married with children, while others are single. Studies have shown, however, that these women seem to have one thing in common, that they have been damaged in some way, either psychologically, emotionally, or sexually. So men in prison are seen as being safe. They can't hurt the women and they don't have to clothe, feed, or clean up after these men. The relationship becomes dangerous and exciting, unlike the mundane existence of everyday life. But before we go on to look at one such woman who fell in love with a prisoner, we first need to find out how the man came to be in prison in the first place. So let's travel back 55 years ago to a place called Luthersburg in Pennsylvania in the US. Back in 1966, the area was a rural farming community. A family named the Rymers lived in the town. Doug and Lavon had a daughter named Pamela, who attended the local high school and was a senior honours student. She took an advanced mathematics class with only nine students and she was the only female. It was her final year of high school and she would then be attending the Pennsylvania State University on a scholarship. Pamela's school prom was approaching and she went shopping for a dress to wear. She found the perfect dress and was looking forward to the prom. Then about a week before the prom, school was finished for the day and she boarded her school bus and headed home. But her parents became concerned when late into the day she hadn't returned home yet. They had an awful feeling that something was wrong as it was just not like their daughter to come straight home after school. They eventually became quite distraught and called the police, who conducted a search for her. And it didn't take long for her lifeless body to be discovered. The autopsy would determine she had been hit on the head with a blunt instrument, raped, strangled, and her throat was cut. Cuts on her fingers indicated that she had tried to defend herself. The police then questioned people living in the houses nearby where she was found. They were struck with the similarity of information provided by some of the residents regarding a station wagon they had seen in the area. After further investigation, they were able to determine that the vehicle matched the description of the vehicle that a teacher at Pamela's High School drove. The police were then in the process of locating and questioning the teacher, but they didn't have to, as he himself went to the police station the very next morning, and the following strange exchange occurred between the officers and the teacher. The man's first words were, I am the man you are looking for. 
but the officer didn't know what he was referring to, and when questioned, the man added, The incident in Luthersburg. He gave his name, and the following exchange occurred. The teacher said, I killed that girl. What girl? Pamela Reimer. And how did you kill this girl? I hit her with a wrench and choked her. And here now is an account of what he said happened. He said he had been driving when he saw one of his school students, Pamela Reimer, walking home after getting off the school bus. He said he stopped and asked if she wanted a ride home, and she agreed. While they were talking, he claimed that Pamela misinterpreted something that he had said, and she then attempted to leave the car, saying that she was going to report him. But he then grabbed her to stop her from getting out of the car. He then stated that he couldn't remember what happened after that, only that at some point he had hit her with a wrench and then strangled her. He never mentioned anything about sexually assaulting her or cutting her throat, which the autopsy was to later determine. After hearing his statement, the police subsequently arrested him. So, who was this man? The teacher had taught as a high school maths teacher for eight years. Pamela was in his advanced maths class. He was married and had two children. So the man went to trial and his defence team argued that during his confession, he had not been given the option of requesting a lawyer and that therefore his Miranda rights had been violated. They therefore requested for his confession to be thrown out of court, but the court declined this request. He was ultimately found guilty of first-degree murder and rape. His defence then appealed the conviction on the grounds that his constitutional rights had been violated, as he had not been offered his Miranda rights. The Supreme Court ultimately ruled in his favour. However, the court ruling was then further contested and it was argued that his confession had been voluntary and that the law enforcement officers hadn't informed him of his right to access a free lawyer as they deemed that due to his profession as a teacher that he could have afforded one. However, the court responded by stating that it was not appropriate to assume what the man could or could not afford. He was then ultimately granted a new trial. So, in the second trial, his confession was not presented, but he was ultimately convicted a second time, as there had been enough other evidence gathered. He received a sentence of life imprisonment without parole, and during his time in prison, he came to be viewed as a model prisoner. The prison where he was serving had a prisoner pen pal program, where inmates could exchange letters with people on the outside who were usually from local churches in the area. Many of the prisoners didn't have family or friends, and the pen pal scheme was seen as a way for inmates to form positive relationships which helped with their well-being. The teacher began exchanging letters with a lady named Diane Brodbeck from a nearby Lutheran church, and eventually she made regular visits to the prison to meet with him, which continued for a number of years. Throughout the man's incarceration, his lawyers continued to make attempts to have his conviction overturned, but ultimately they finally exhausted all avenues for appeal and his sentence of life in prison would stand. However, although he had run out of appeals, the man's lawyer pointed out to him that there was still the chance that his sentence could be commuted, which means that it could be reduced. 
At that time, state governors in the US were able to grant commutations to prisoners even if they had life sentences without parole. The teacher's lawyers tried a number of times to have his sentence commuted, but these attempts failed. So, after writing and meeting with Diane on a regular basis, the man ultimately professed that he was in love with her. He knew she was married, but was not deterred. He told her how distraught he was that he could no longer appeal his conviction, and that he couldn't face life in prison, and that he wanted to escape so they could be together. It was then in 1986, after being in prison for 20 years, that the teacher's good behaviour had granted him the privilege of working outside the prison unsupervised. He worked in a field cutting hay, which was about a mile from the prison, and it was then that he decided he would take his chance to escape, and he arranged for Diane to pick him up while he was working and they fled together. By the time it was realised that he was missing, it was too late and the police were unable to locate them. The police investigation would eventually lead them to look closely into Diane Brodbeck, who had been visiting him in prison, and what they discovered led them to believe that she had aided the man to escape. Firstly, it was determined that she had opened up a new bank account and transferred money into the account which her husband of 25 years had not been aware of. Prison phone records also had shown that the teacher and the woman had spoken on the phone the night before he had escaped. She had also put a vehicle in a storage facility a few weeks earlier, which was thought to have been the escape vehicle. Diane was then charged as an accessory to the escape. After a month, the police found her car, which had been abandoned. It was confirmed by her husband that some of the contents left in the car were hers. So the police surmised two scenarios about what had happened. Firstly, that the teacher had manipulated Diane to help him escape and therefore felt her life could be in danger. And since her personal belongings had been found, they thought perhaps he had already killed her. Secondly, there was the possibility that the couple were in a relationship and were planning to create aliases and live together. The couple then remained missing for two years, although the police had received numerous tips from people claiming they had seen them. It was then that the story appeared on an episode of the TV show Unsolved Mysteries. When it was suggested that Diane may have helped the man to escape, here is what a friend of hers had to say, and also you will hear her mother and her husband. Diane met through a friend of hers who had been visiting and she was no longer able to do it. And Diane had been corresponding with prisoners in other states and she thought this would be like a continuation of what she had been doing. And it would be a very fulfilling thing for her to do. She was just always thinking of other people. She really was a people person. I know my daughter. She would not deliberately help a convicted murderer escape from prison. My daughter would not do this. She was a very moral person, and you just did not do certain things. She had a very strong code of ethics, and certainly helping a prisoner escape was not among them. When the troopers came to my door on Sunday, wanting to know where my wife was, saying that had been broken out of prison by someone, thinking it was her, 
far as I was concerned, they were completely wrong. She had nothing to do with it. Diane talked about I know she was writing him. I know she visited him. But that's about all. It was just a little bit as far as I knew. Yes, I think that my wife probably did help get out of jail under pressure. For what reason, I don't know. It's hard to say. She could have been threatening. I don't know what happened. I really don't. Well, if my wife has run off with another man, it's for sure I do not like it. That's for sure, you know. We were married for 25 years, and I thought they were fairly good years, you know. And as I told many people, she didn't leave just me. She left the whole family. I don't think she's alive. Because I think if she is, she would contact somebody in the family. So, with the story gaining national exposure across the US, the police received numerous tips from people believing that they had seen the couple. One man reported that he had worked with the woman, although she had provided a different name. With this information, the police were eventually able to hunt the couple down and they were taken into custody. So, what happened to them? The teacher pleaded guilty to escape and was given an additional three to seven years in prison and Diane was sentenced to two years in prison for aiding in the man's escape. Her lawyer argued that she had been manipulated and that the man had never told her why he had been in prison. Here is what her lawyer said, quote, She looks back now and says, how could I have been so stupid? She basically realises that she had made a big mistake and wants to put this whole phase of her life behind her. She was going through a difficult time in her life. Her children had grown up and didn't need her any longer. She wasn't getting the attention at home that she needed or wanted and she was very attracted to blank. He gave her the attention that she needed at that point in her life. So the man continued to serve his time in prison, but all the while he tried many times to argue that he should have been charged with second degree murder, not first degree, saying that murdering Pamela had not been premeditated. But Pamela's mother, Levon, campaigned relentlessly to have her daughter's killer remain behind bars. She believed his actions had been premeditated, as Pamela had once told her that she wanted to be moved out of his class. Pamela had said to her, quote, Oh, Mum, you should see his eyes. Pamela had also told her mother that she had seen the teacher driving past their house. What made Pamela's death all the more tragic was that the family had a son who had been killed in a farm accident three years earlier before Pamela died. He was 10 years old and then their father died 10 years after Pamela. Here is a quote from Levon, which is just so sad. She says, I have nothing, no children, no grandchildren. No one calls me to say, how are you, mum? My life is over since then. What he did just didn't end my daughter's life, it ended my life and my husband's life. While researching this story, I was interested in the pen pal program, which had been operating in the man's prison. And what I found is that it is actually very common in countries across the world. I found countless sites which featured prisoners looking to find pen pals. Here is one quote about the benefit of such schemes. Quote, we found that something as simple as a pen pal relationship can lead to tangible benefits for prisoners. Given the recent rise in prison violence and suicides, 
increased prison overcrowding and the current resource pressures on the prison system, letter writing seems an extremely valuable way to provide greater support for prisoners based on genuine relationships of care and trust at remarkably little cost. While some prisoners have family that they can be in touch with, a large proportion have little or no contact with anyone on the outside. So prisoners who have been able to correspond with pen pals have said that it helped them to feel less isolated. It made changes to their self-identity and boosted their happiness through having a distraction from the routine of prison life. And it also raised their hopes for life beyond prison. And the volunteers who wrote to prisoners, they say they get feelings of enjoyment and satisfaction writing to their pen friends, seeing the letters as a two-way relationship which broadens their own outlook on life. The benefits of the program are described as follows, quote, The prisoner and volunteer accounts paint a rich picture of genuine relationships of care and trust between pen friends which demonstrate that even within the constraints necessary for the protection of volunteers, simple letter-writing relationships can lead to tangible benefits for both prisoners and volunteers. As a result of being accepted by their pen friend, prisoners experience friendship with someone outside their criminal contacts and come to see themselves as more than just a prisoner. They feel less stigmatised and like a normal human being. So, I'd now like for you to hear from the teacher himself. He gave an interview after being in prison for 30 years, and here is what he said. Quote, I was a rather straight-laced, conservative, rural school teacher when I came to prison. I don't think anyone would have considered me really impetuous and crazy back then, although probably one of my downfalls was that I had a bit of a temper. But I am not so sure, as I look back on it, that I had much more of a temper than any other young men my age. I haven't retained it over the years, or at least I've dispelled it, so I'm not sure. I've watched all the young guys coming into prison now, and they seem to be able to explode on a moment's notice. I see myself that way. Normally, it was the type of thing that was directed at inanimate objects, like to slam a door or whatever. I don't think most people realise the potential for violence they have in them under the right circumstances. So my thoughts here are that he seems to be saying that his temper led him to kill Pamela and that anyone is capable of doing what he did. No, you committed a brutal act. It wasn't just anger coming to the surface. And no, the majority of us do not have the potential to do what you did. I just feel that he totally downplayed what he did just describing murder as losing his temper. He went on, I taught maths and chemistry and those types of subjects in senior high school. I thought I did a pretty good job of it. I've received a lot of comments from my former students during the years I've been in, and most of them seem to have perceived me that way. There wasn't one of them who didn't see it as far out of character for me to react as I did so that I ended up in prison. In my opinion, it doesn't matter how his students viewed him. As all of that gets cancelled out, he's now a murderer as far as I'm concerned. He continues, When I see that picture of me 20 to 30 years ago, I see a person that looks almost like my son now. 
I have a son that is 32. He was three years old when I came to prison. My daughter, who is now 30, couldn't even walk yet. So more than these pictures here, if I really want to see what the passage of time looks like, I look at the pictures of my children when I came to prison and what they look like now. That really demonstrates what 30 years looks like. In the picture of me today, I see a person who is a lot more cynical and a lot less trusting of people than the one 30 years ago. I grew up in an area where we used to keep our doors unlocked and you trusted everybody. Now I'm in an environment with other inmates who have a tendency to take advantage if they can. Of course, not all of them do that, but there are more here than you would find if you were in a community somewhere else. So I'm thinking here, are we supposed to feel sorry for you that you're getting taken advantage of? His own actions led him to prison, so he needs to stop complaining about it. He made his bed and now he needs to lay in it. And he seems to forget that he took advantage of Pamela, so that's karma for you. He goes on, but it's also the system. I just do not trust the system very much because I've learned that it's so political. It has little to do with what you've done and little to do with who you are. It rides on the waves of the attitudes of the public and politicians. And we are in a real trough of that right now. That's what makes me so cynical and not very trusting of people generally. I've become suspicious. That's not the way to be, but I don't know how to overcome that. I just can't believe what this man is saying, that he's not trusting. But what about Pamela? She trusted her teacher, as all students do and should, and he betrayed that trust. He continues, My mother, who is elderly, comes to visit regularly. Every time I see her, I see someone who has probably spent more time in prison in the visiting room than a lot of people who commit crimes. I look at her and see what kind of pain she has gone through. It makes it easier to identify with the pain of the victim's mother in this particular case, and what she has gone through. I think I always was an empathetic person, but not to the degree that I am now. For a young man, the world centers around you. As you get older, you find out that's not true. So he feels sorry for his mother, but it was his own actions that caused her so much pain. He can't even use Pamela's name and just calls her the victim. He seems to take pride in calling himself empathetic, but an empathetic person doesn't murder. He continues, remorse is a big term with criminologists and correction people. The parole board always emphasizes that you must demonstrate remorse. I am not sure how you do that after 30 years. There is a time when remorse is at its maximum, but I don't think it is 30 years later. Yet, if you don't demonstrate it successfully, maybe not even truthfully, then you are not going to be successful in your applications for parole. So is he saying here that even after 30 years, he doesn't know how to show remorse for Pamela? Well, I think it's probably because he actually isn't remorseful. If you are truly remorseful about something, your actions will show it without it being forced in any way. So I think if he hasn't shown remorse by now, he never will. And he seems to say that the only benefit of being remorseful is getting paroled. He goes on, but if you sit around all the time and try to find out what's wrong with yourself, instead of looking for some of the positive things that you bring to this world, you end up being a much lesser individual than you are capable of and than society wants you to be. 
often the system is counterproductive in that regard. Remorse has always been a difficult term for me to deal with. For the first four or five years in prison, I had a hard time living with myself. It was dealing with the psychologist that helped. We became sort of friends, and he really recommended that I start looking for positive things in my life and move on, and I tried to do that. I don't think you ever get over feeling sorry for yourself, though. You don't lose sight of the fact that there are victims that have suffered more when you are in for homicide. The primary victims have suffered much more than you, but you definitely do feel sorry for yourself and try to second-guess why you made certain decisions as spontaneous as they may have been. Why did I happen to be at that particular place? Why did I react that way? I was just walking around the yard with a young fellow, and because of misconduct or something, he was told he can't participate in the educational programs anymore until he gets back to a certain behaviour level. Now, that is why the system fails. They punish a guy by taking away his education, which is what he needs in order to survive in society. That kind of stuff is so counterproductive. When something happens, I can't go in, close the door, turn on the television and ignore it, like some people do. If I don't like something, I have to deal with it. If it's filing a complaint, if it's filing a brief in the court, if it's trying to change something within the prison system. When there's something that bothers me, that's the way I deal with things. That's the way I try to deal with what I see as an inequity in my sentence. That's what drives me. So he said how he sees his sentence as an inequity. Well, I'm sorry, but he committed murder. He doesn't have the right to question his sentence. So what are your thoughts about what he said? I think he did make some good points, and I agree with the part about prisoners getting an education. But to me, he didn't acknowledge Pamela. He hadn't told Diane the full story about what he did. If he was truly remorseful, he would have, considering he was supposedly in love with her. For me, I still view him as a con artist. He just doesn't seem genuine or empathetic as he claims to be. And the story he said about what happened in the car with Pamela, how he had said something that she misinterpreted, no, that's not what happened. He deliberately and maliciously murdered her. So after all this time, he can't even tell the true story. So we don't actually even know what happened. I was not able to read anywhere any details that he gave about what actually happened. So that says a lot about him and the fact that he is not remorseful. So you may be wondering what happened to the man and is he still in prison? Well, it was back in 2012, almost 10 years ago, that he took his own life. He was aged 76 and had spent just over 40 years in prison. And this made me wonder what Pamela's mother would have thought about him taking his life. But sadly, she had died two years earlier. And I wonder if his death may have brought her some comfort, but I guess that we'll never know now. So after he died, I read a number of obituaries about the man from people who actually had good things to say about him. Apparently, he was heavily into politics and the law and had fought for prisoners' rights. So there were many who praised him and the work that he had done while in prison to better the lives of prisoners. So the question I have to ask myself, does that cancel out what he did to Pamela? For me, it's hard to see him any other way than a murderer. 
So as you know, I haven't provided the teacher's name as is my usual policy, but I did include Diane's name as I see her as a victim as well, just as Pamela was, although it was fortunate for her that she didn't suffer the same fate. It's just crazy what love can do to people, but I think he was just a charismatic man who manipulated her to help him escape. As with the other stories that I've covered, there is just so little about Pamela that I could find, but we do know that she died just before her senior prom and she was buried in her prom dress. There is only one photo of her that I could find, but she can be found on the Find a Grave website under the name Pamela Sue Rymer, and that's spelled R-I-M-E-R. And now I'd like to end this episode with a podcast recommendation. Take a listen to this promo. Are you a true crime fan who prefers hearing about obscure but fascinating mysteries? Then you should be listening to The Murder Sheet. I'm Kevin Greenlee, and I'm a lawyer representing the sister of a murder victim. And I'm Anya Kane, a journalist with an interest in stories about unsolved cases. We connected over the Burger Chef murders, a 1978 unsolved case involving the killings of four young restaurant employees. Now we're looking to track restaurant homicides. We'll share stories of healing in the wake of tragedy infuriating instances of possible wrongful convictions, and disturbing cold cases. We'll talk to FBI officials, dogged defense lawyers, and veteran police investigators to give you a deep dive into undercovered crimes. We won't just be recapping the headlines on each case. We'll be digging deep into these murders ourselves to bring you the real story. Subscribe to The Murder Sheet wherever you listen to podcasts. And now let's preview the next episode. It's called Runaways. The teacher and student ran away together. Were they ever found? And to end this episode, I will leave you with this quote. Beware the person who stabs you and then say they're the one who's bleeding. Bye for now and remember to be a good apple.